Stories, fables, ghostly tales. Welcome, my awesome listeners. I hope your week has been brilliant and is only going to get better when we sink our teeth into our three stories today. First up is the Dunluwe Church by G.M. Danielson, about a mystical and cursed church in Ireland. I won't give too much away there. This story is also where you get to hear my attempt, and I strongly imply attempt, at an Irish accent. I also may need to issue a disclaimer that this attempt may be so bad it warrants an explicit code in its own right, such as butchering. Jokes aside, this episode does have some adult themes, reference to sexual abuse, and adult language. Not for little ears, this one. The second story is actually a poem titled Down to Sleep. And short of it being what I say when I finish podcasting for the night, it's actually a really interesting and thought-provoking poem by the Wizard of the Woods. And lastly is The Children, Entry 1 and Entry 2. I won't be giving anything away there either, but I'll be finishing that one off Wednesday next week. Now I have fantastic news! I have a brand new Ode Night Tea Titan. Seriously guys and gals, where do I find these amazing people? I am extremely fortunate to find such gems to support this podcast. Solstra has increased her support to the highest tier possible as an Ode Night Tea Titan, and I'm blown away yet again by her kindness. Thank you so much, Solstra. You're amazing. Your help is going to shape the podcast immensely. I also want to take the opportunity to thank Matthew J. Bauer, who goes above and beyond this tier, doubly so, in fact, at that donation level. Simply breathtaking. And of course, Maya, for your amazing support so early on as well, just like Matthew J. Bauer and in this tier. Goodness, I am so lucky. And mates, that caps off the limit of three in that tier of support and leaves the only support available as my white tea warlords. If you get a chance, please consider checking it out. Okay, my lovelies, I'm going to thank my Ode Night Tea Titans again, because I love to, with their own mini stories with Gaelic references. Let's do this. Matthew J. Bauer of Iontuck. Known for healing miracles and curing towns of blight, Matthew of Iontuck is known for endlessly performing miracles in towns that are deep in discord of cursed diseased, ravaged landscapes where crops cease to grow and villages consumed by darkness. Where his name is mentioned, there is a spark that is ignited and an endless flame that draws in hope, exhuming the darkness where only the shadows took solace. Iontark represents everything that pure light embodies, power, judgment, and purity. Mention his name and your battle against darkness will have its tables turned. Maya Banrion Narkate Some use dragons to travel and keep them safe, but Maya chooses her feline guardians as her traveler and companion. Wings are not needed when traveling on the back of giant furred creatures whose eyes glow with a teal and blue steel flame. It has been witnessed that Maya led the charge against Kalios, the Lord of Mist and Shadows, penetrating the caustic wall that would consume the land with her celestial shield burning through what any human would experience as being doused in acid. Yet Maya shrugged it off, imbued by the strength of her creatures and carried into the heart of hatred to deliver her justice. You need never call her name. Simply reach up for a hand when you need it, and when all is lost, her hands will find yours. Solstra 
of Ion Ram Halai the Kaidais. Whilst the forces of mist and shadows are being pushed back by Banron Nakite, and the populace are healed by Matthew Iontark, Solstra infects the darkness with her spells and the energy of the land itself. There are spirits that reside in our lands, and only a few can command its power. Solstra is one such being. The manipulator of darkness is her real skill, crumbling the shadows of their strength, bending them to her will, and infecting them with weaknesses that no one could see, yet the hatred of the shadows would feel. Solstra, commanding the creatures of the winds to break tides of shadows, the essence of earth to fracture their resolve, and the spirit of flame to cleanse them from this world. Her name misleads many, but the war against evil is impossible without her support. Do not fear her, for she is all around you. Thank you all for being amazing mates. The trio that supports this podcast, thank you so much, you're brilliant. And my awesome white tea warlords, I own cows, the horned chieftain. Amidst the chaos of the darkness, you need a commander at your side. I own cows, the horned chieftain, is three times the size of the tallest man, wielding a halberd that glistens clean in the sunlight. One swing is all it takes to divide an army, and one swing is taken to cleave the toughest opponents in two. This being knows not what fear is, but only that if one doesn't fight, then be prepared to be consumed. And so, he fights. Lee Bauer of Radiance. If you blink, you'll miss him on the field of battle. Thousands lie dead at his hand, and no one would realize why. Wars were lost before they even begun, imbued with the power of celerity. Each punch delivers pure energy that destroys one foe than the next. Lee has shared where he earned his strength. He once stumbled upon a seed during his time as a herbalist in the dark woods. Known for its rare plant and oddities but wrought with obvious dangers, he found there a golden seed that glistened so bright before disappearing in a blink of an eye. This took place upon touching the seedling itself. From then on, he could generate pure light in the darkest of nights, and thus a hero and legend was born. Thank you both for being amazing and supporting me at this level. You guys are brilliant. And of course, my Grain forces, Chad Warren, Just Heather, Lorraine Crisanto, Paige Marcini, Peter Raffelli, Michelangelo Yacone, Robert Fisher, and Tasha Moncrief. Thank you all for your support. Now turn off the lights, turn up the sound, and get ready for something special, like you. The Dunluwee Church Haunting Like almost every drinking bet, things started with a stupid conversation. It was St. Patrick's Day and late. The pub crowd was beginning to thin, and we were finally able to share drinks at the counter. Well, share drinks and stare at Aislinn McTeague's tack hammer rear in yoga pants. After several minutes of whispering and grinning at each other, Mike glanced over his shoulder then back at Aislinn, leaned over the counter, and declared that her ass would make a gay priest give up altar boys. To which Owen replied, So, does that mean she has a boy's arse? This elicited howls of laughter and all kinds of cheers. Aislinn accepted the inebriated praise with a mock gratitude and asked if we'd all been raped as boys. 
and if that meant we couldn't tell the difference between male and female rears. That comment sent us into a litany of various anti-Catholic sentiments stated in between requests for Aislinn to display her asset for our physical re-education. Though, as the tourist of the group, I knew her the least. I could tell our insistence had worn very thin. She slammed my pint of Guinness down and stared at all of us, eyes dark. I dare you fuckers to get into a real church and say those things, she said. We laughed, and Mike licked up the spilled Guinness, trying to demonstrate his prowess with his tongue. She did not blanch, but crossed her arms over her tiny chest and narrowed her eyes. I bet none of you vile bastards would have the balls to profane any of the sacraments. I dare you, boys. I dare you. Walk into a Catholic church and say things like that, what you just said. She grabbed Mike's glass and flung the contents right in his face. We stared at her, silent a moment, then burst into further laughter at her audacity. We harassed her with questions about her stance on religion and the Pope, then added various jokes about what she had done with the nuns. But she remained serious and reiterated her bet. And what'll you do if we accept this bet? Go to a church and come back and all? Well, to prove you bastards have done it, I'll be coming with you. If you have the balls and wits to take the dare. And what's your bet? Tell the bets that you'll do it, and if you do, I'll kiss each one of you as long as you like, and I'll give Tourist Boy here perhaps a bit more. But if you go there with me, and fool around, piss yourselves, and idle in the day, then I'll count you little fuckers all, and you'll apologize. I apologize like men, or I'll tell my boss they never let you back in here again, is what she said. Our group deliberated briefly just to make things look official, but before she even finished speaking, we all decided amongst ourselves that we'd do as she asked. We even agreed to let her pick the church for us. She chose an ancient site, Dunlowy, the remote old place east of the low bearing the same name. Her choice surprised us. We half expected her to pick a major establishment and send us in to make hopeless fools of ourselves. Though we didn't think so at the time, she probably chose the site out of pure sympathy for our state. The drive from Letterkenny West on R251 was long, and took a good hour or more since Aislinn drove miles under the speed limit in her van. Perhaps she had wanted to attract even less attention from the fuzz considering her drunken cargo. Either way, the drive did us good, and by the time we crossed through Glenvague, our group was fairly sober, enough to hold semi-sentient conversations with her. By the time we reached the site, we were almost more excited to explore the stark countryside than make good on the bet. She parked the car in the saffron-hued wild grasses and joked if we all needed assistance getting out, while the rest of the lads careened toward the church. I stayed back a ways and walked with Aislinn. She tried to scowl at me, but a playful smile appeared on her face when I pretended to retch. She knelt beside me and quickly dragged her fingers through my hair, mussing it up like a mate. I caught her hand, and she bit her lip. We walked up the rise to the church past a curious, framed gravestone, the only one in the entire lawn. The moon broke through the dense, ghostly clouds, revealing a stern edifice that appeared pitiless in the cold light. I turned to Aislinn, surprised she had brought us there but she smiled and explained some of the building's history. 
I suddenly remembered reading in my Frommer's Ireland about a haunted church in the poisoned glen. And now, that I saw the actual structure the book described, I shivered. I couldn't imagine how such a harsh, needle-like thing could afford any comfort or friendliness, past or present. Its exterior of white marble, now wickedly stained from years of exposure, seemed almost black like basalt. The entrance, or narthex, to the place lay directly beneath the bell tower, the sheer height of which increased the dread I now felt. Four triangular spires decorated the tower's roof like the fangs of a great wolf, tipped with brass ornaments that gleamed in the dim light. Once inside, I could see the spacious nave, a skeletal thing in the roofless state that made me feel exposed. Nothing remained of the old furnishings but an empty floor that reverberated with the calls of my friends. They beckoned Aislinn and I joined them, posing like gargoyles beneath the soaring windows. So, are we doing the better or not? I glanced at Aislinn, my friends, sensing my hesitance, voiced their frustrations but did not protest my withdrawal from the bet. Rather tried to convince me to continue regardless of the outcome. It stands Patty's day for Christ's sake, William! And you needn't be scared, poor boy. There are no longer priests to make a Nancy boy out of your chum. Suddenly, there came a faint hiss from the back of the church that echoed across the floor of the nave. We all froze for a moment, unsure if the sound had come from one of us or was just the wind. My friends crept towards me, staggering like mock zombies. It's the fart of a priest coming for you, William, they teased. The hiss came again, this time louder, sharper, like an agitated exhalation. I could almost hear a voice behind it, and its echo expired into the night. Then I did hear a voice, a strange, withered voice that resounded in the nave. Salutat vos qui sestiderunt. Again, we froze. We listened for the origin of the words. Veniti, veniti, hariticorum. We scanned the dark windows of the belfry. Nothing. The sound did not seem to be coming from above, but across from us somewhere. We checked the sanctuary's windows. Still, nothing. Then we saw a scarlet-shaped flash for a brief second in the doorway to the chancel. We drew together, shaking then advanced towards the shape. My tongue cleaved to the roof of my mouth. There, perched on a strange glassy chair, sat a hooded figure draped in black. At its feet lay a red beast, curled up, glowing like embers. Its distinctive scales left us in little doubt as to its species. A dragon. It was small, hauntingly diminutive, an ancient beast shrunken into a malignant horror, with wings, translucent and fiery like a bat's, if set ablaze. At the sight of us, it raised its head and gave a terrible cry. Its rancor pierced the air and stung our ears. As if in response to the beast, the hooded figure raised its right hand into the air, palm up, cupped as though it contained some substance invisible to us. 
It spoke the same words as before, then tilted its hand, pouring out the contents within. Then it said, Laodicea, pointing to the spot where what it had poured had landed. Then it pointed to the creature at its feet, saying, Requirit mortem. The dragon thing rose upon hearing this, stood and crawled towards us. Each step of its clawed feet left a molten mark on the floor behind it. That's when we ran for the van. I seized Aislinn's arm and dragged her with me, not caring if I hurt her and not daring to look behind. Mike made it to the car first and Aislinn tossed the keys to him. Before I'd even shut my door, Aislinn had put the van in reverse and was speeding down the gravel road, almost tipping it over in her haste. When we hit the pavement on R251, she pushed even harder, driving until she hit the limiter on the van's accelerator. I still don't know how fast we drove. In fact, none of us did. All four of us had our eyes on the mirrors and the road behind. The police pulled us over as we reached the outskirts of Letterkenny. They cut us all thinking we were high on meth. We were just overjoyed from the sight of their flashing lights. All of us gladly accepted a night in jail. In fact, Aislinn begged to be taken there with us. Even though she passed the field sobriety tests, they sent her home amid wild protestations by us lads. All of us were sick when they took her away. But we were relieved an hour into our booking when we saw her enter the detention center. They booked her for striking one of the peelers. After 24 hours, they released us back into society. But we couldn't go back. Instead, we all joined up at the bus station, rode into Dublin, and are renting a three-room apartment. We haven't left the building except to buy some food. We eat as much as possible from the vending machines. We aren't concerned about clothes or toiletries. We just wash what's on our backs in the sink. It's too risky to go outside for anything else. Lately, we're thinking of taking a ferry to Cardiff and then a train to London. We may travel even further and go into mainland Europe. Anything to stay away from that horror. Yet somehow, when I finally fall asleep at night by the front door, a crowbarring kitchen knife by my side, I am convinced we haven't outrun the thing sitting in the Dunluwy church. Or the red beast has sent after us. Down to sleep. Now I lay me down to sleep. In my dreams the demons creep. Night surrounds on every side. Desperate need to run and hide. Crawling through a land of black. Shock and chill run down my back. Muscles tense and shake with fear. Heartbeat pounding in my ear. Drops of sweat bead down my brow. Feel their hate approaching now. Brimstone stench about the air, caught within their hellish lair. Tried to stay away from sight, glowing eyes that pierced the night. Burning ozone, iron taste, not a second left to waste. Press my body to the ash, fain I cannot feel it slash. Rusted needles pierce my skin, loosing poison deep within. Crashing footsteps close behind, screeching whispers in my mind. Something watching, something there. Feel the glaring, piercing stare. 
feel the claws around my leg, stare into its jaws and beg. Face of broken, splintered skulls, pain grows sharp as vision dulls, lowered into gaping maw, darkness was the last I saw. I lay in my stretcher bed, crash survivor, nearly dead. Wrapped in bandage, wrecked with pain, hypodermics in my vein. Medicine to keep me out, else in agony I'd shout. By my bedside, parents cry, watching their only child die. Pray the Lord my soul to take from my dreams, I'll never Wake. The Children Entry 1 They were abandoned and seeking revenge against their long-departed parents. That is the only conclusion I can come to in reference to the children. Sadly, I've had to suffer many trials to make this conclusion. And as I lie here with paper and pen... I can't help writing down the memories of that gruesome massacre. The look on my dear Anne's face, Johnny's dying breaths, and Lindsay. Poor Lindsay! I must warn you, reader, there is no happy ending to this tale. Not even my survival is a satisfying ending. It began a few nights ago, when I was awoken by a sudden loud noise coming from the kitchen. I have a tendency to not fall back asleep for several hours once I'm awake. So I decided I might as well put whatever pot or pan that fell over back in its place. I gingerly got out of bed, making my lovely wife stir a little in her sleep. Our home was rather large, so I had to go down a somewhat narrow corridor and cross through the family room to get there. I flipped the light switch and easily spot the large black pot we use for stew night on the floor base up. I bent my knees to retrieve it when I heard a bizarre pitter-patter pat-pat. Great, now we have rats, I thought, oblivious to the events to come. I put the pot back, its usual drawer, and began to wonder how it had fallen in the first place. I concluded that either Lindsay or Johnny had left it on the counter by mistake. I glanced at the microwave to check the time and saw that it was on the earlier side of 12am. To be honest, it felt later into the morning than that, but I was never good at judging time. I decided to watch some television to pass the time, since I had to leave for work in a few hours. I headed back into the family room, switched on the light, and sat down on the couch. Just as I hit the cushion, I saw a shadow dash past my peripheral vision. I hesitated before quickly aiming my head in that direction and seeing... Nothing. A sudden chill ran up my spine, making me shudder. Had it always been so cold in here? I asked myself as the moment passed by almost as quickly as it came. I turned on the television and began watching the news. Some fast food joint was going bankrupt, gas prices higher, some international crap going on, etc. In other words, same as it had been for the past few years. I remember groaning in disappointment for the state of the world, but I digress. After about 15 minutes, a story about some recent kidnappings around town. The police couldn't find any leads on where the children are, nor had the families received calls asking for a ransom, which was not typical in these cases. 
I can't remember if what happened next was pure paranoia, created by the children, or a mixture of both, but I suddenly heard a loud thump nearby. I jerked my head in that direction and grabbed the remote to use as a weapon, but whatever may have been there was gone, leaving my heart pounding. I decided to check on the kids and left the remote controller behind, because what the hell is that gonna do? Johnny, my eight-year-old son, was in the bedroom closest to the family room, so it was logical that I checked there first. I slowly approached my son's bedroom door, feeling another wave of chilly air as I came closer. Why was it so cold? I grasped the knob with a sweaty palm and opened the door slowly, peeking in to see my innocent child sleeping soundly. I heaved a sigh of relief. <sighs> closed the door quietly and headed towards Lindsay's room, feeling confident in my children's safety. I hadn't even noticed that the door was already slightly ajar when I snuck my head in. Alas, I must end my entry shorter than I wish. I sent them drawing close as my candlelight fades. If I am able to escape with my life, I shall continue my tale of woe. Signed, Richard X. Ferdinand. The Children, Entry 2 I have managed to elude the children for now, so here is the continuation of my first encounter. I noticed something was off about my daughter's bedroom, but couldn't quite put my finger on it. I had guessed that it was another bout of paranoia, but I soon found out it was something much worse. A smile cracked my face as I watched my daughter slumber. As I had entered her bedroom to admire how adorable Lindsay was. However, as I approached my child, I took note of a strange, dark liquid splashed against her pillow. I furrowed my brow in befuddlement as I caressed my child's head, feeling the liquid caked onto her hair. I had held my hand close to my face to get a better look and was shocked to see a dark red glistening against my hand. I swear I almost vomited, as I discovered my daughter's blood was literally on my hands. I managed to stifle my gag reflex before realizing what was so wrong with this scene, other than my daughter's head wound. I turned my head to face the closet doorway, my heart dropping into my stomach. Lindsay had always had the childish fear of monsters hiding in her closet. So I was tasked with the fatherly duty of doing a monster check every night. I had, in fact, done my duty earlier that night, but I feared that I may have done so too soon. A dark curiosity swam through my head as I slowly stepped towards the door. Feeling my heartbeat quicken with every step, my hand seemed to reach out for the doorknob on its own. While I spectated outside of my own body, I watched myself grasp the knob my palms clammy with a sudden breakout of sweat, then slowly turn and pull open the door. What I saw next haunts my dreams to this day. There, in the far corner of my daughter's closet, lay her beheaded corpse in a bloodied heap. I could see a gaping hole in her chest, where her heart had once lied, and the remnant of a lung. Additionally, her limbs have been devoured almost entirely leaving only the bones of her elbows and knees to drip whatever blood remained in the torso. 
Tears welled up in my eyes as I dropped to my knees. My face contorted into wretched sobs as I felt the vomit rising from my churning stomach again. To say the least, I did nothing to keep my last meal from coming back up. After releasing my innards from their domain, I wiped the excess from my mouth and turned back to look at my daughter's head laying on her pillow. Disgusted by the knowledge that nothing was beneath those bedsheets, I closed the closet door behind me while I tried to refrain from sobbing next to my daughter's body. As I returned to my little boy's bedroom, expecting the worst, I didn't bother being quiet as I entered his room, stepped to his bed and held my child tightly. To my astonishment, he sleepily wrapped his arms around my neck and whispered, Daddy, why are you waking me up when it's still dark out? You cannot fathom the happiness I felt as I heard my son's voice in my ear and replied with, Sorry, son, but you need to sleep with mummy and daddy tonight, okay? Okay, he answered, rubbing his eyes as I carried him off to my wife and I's room. Although I was beaming with joy at the moment, the fact that whomever or whatever killed Lindsay was still lurking around was a lead block in my brain. I sped towards my bedroom door, quickly opening it and slamming it shut with my back. I was not going to take any chances on a murder slash cannibal sneaking up behind me. My wife awoke with a start, not expecting such a loud bang in the middle of the night. I quickly handed Johnny to her, turned the nightstand light on and began rummaging through the dimly lit counter for my gun. A 9mm SIG saw that I had owned since I had turned 21. Honey, what the hell are you doing? Annie questioned me with fear in her eyes. And where is Lindsay? I can't explain, I replied as I found the gun beneath an old copy of Reader's Digest. Just keep quiet. Anna opened her mouth to speak but realized arguing with me now served no purpose. So she kept her mouth pursed in a disapproving glare. Johnny looked up to me with his innocent blue eyes and smiled. Good luck, Daddy. Thank you, son, I replied before cocking the gun and leaving the bedroom, locking the door behind me. I kept my firearm straight ahead of me, quickly scanning my house from room to room until I was in a spacious living room that formed the entrance of the house. I kept my back to the wall as I reached for the light switch and flipped it to the on position, illuminating my surroundings. And that is where we'll stop for now. I'll continue this story next week. Mates, did I nail that Irish accent or did I bludgeon it to death? Either way though, it's good practice and I hope you at least enjoyed the tales today. No plug tonight, mates. You just do one thing for me this weekend. Have a good one. Spend time chilling, relax with your pals, and just find some time to really enjoy yourself. Take it easy, mates, and as always, till next we meet.